0: As we considered the doctrine of the fatherhood of God last week, perhaps that might uh, end our formal resolutions for the new year, but nonetheless it seemed fitting that we might look today at what at least Augustine has called the mother of uh, the Lord's people, that is the church, uh, the church. And we look here at Psalm 122, and we see that this is a psalm, of course, about the church. Were you to leaf through your Bible today, you would look, for instance, at Psalm 120, and pressing all the way forward into Psalm at least 134, you would see that those are psalms of ascents. And the idea behind those psalms is simply that they were sung by God's people as they were going up the Temple Mount into the Temple, as they were there assembling and delighting themselves in the things of God. And so we look here at the 122nd Psalm as we consider the doctrine of the church this morning. Truly, the church of Jesus Christ is... A family, a new family, a family produced at his birth by the Father in heaven and placed in the arms of his church. Individual sovereignty so prevalent in this day has certainly worked against this doctrine. Refusal to submit rightly to the very real authority of Christ through the local church. Recognition that access to the graces of Christ have been designed to be received in many ways through the local church. It is an unfortunate reality today that the beauties of a relationship in a fellowship are largely lost on our culture. We recognize that uh, it seems in our own culture that every Association to which we are involved is absolutely voluntary, and we want to assure ourselves before we involve ourselves in it that there's absolutely no responsibility on our part and that we can leave at the simplest whim. And that would not be the institution that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for. And so it's important that we would reject again the common vernacular of the day regarding church. And the reality is, as many of you, as a matter of fact, perhaps most of you have been involved in fellowships that at their very best have been shallow, that seemed doctrinally to be tossed to and fro as the wind on the waves... That seemed trite and trivial, that seemed to focus perhaps on buildings and edifices, on trellises instead of the vine of the Lord Jesus Christ that is His people. We are persuaded that we certainly are not the only fellowship that is attempting to delight ourselves in the sweetness of what it is that God has called to himself the church. But nonetheless, we are persuaded and we propose to you this day that we must insist that we take that which the Lord has promised and died for and delight ourselves in it, for it is good Moses said to his father-in-law, Hobab, as they were going into the promised land, he said, come with us, for we are going with the Lord, and He will do you good. And that's what this psalm is referring to here. Now, it would be important for us to recognize that there has been, and you likely are aware of, and understanding, uh, frankly, a relatively recent understanding of the Scriptures, and that is the theology of dispensationalism. And the theology of dispensationalism, frankly, must be at least briefly addressed as we look at this psalm, because the historical orthodox understanding of this psalm is that it is absolutely referring to the Church of Jesus Christ. And so we affirm, as did our fathers before us, that while the psalmist David certainly was referring to Jerusalem, the holy city, and primarily referring to Jerusalem, the holy city, basically as a reference to the temple of God where God met his people. And that the projection of that absolutely has to do with the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, (laughs) we affirm that the church is in the Old Testament. It is the people of God. The church is always the people of God. And the reality is, as the scriptures indicate, that those and only those who are spiritual children of Abraham are in fact the Israel of God as attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a redeemed son or daughter of God, then you are in fact absolutely the one true child of Abraham you are an Israelite indeed and that's the idea that the scriptures give to us and so we will be affirming that as we look at Psalm 122 here particularly in reference as we see and we'll have our attention directed to this idea that it is a reference to the local church and also to perhaps in some ways the universal church and you may say well why should I be concerned with this doctrine of the church that sounds rather dusty and old and uninteresting those that went before us gave their lives for the church for the ability to meet as a church the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave his life for the institution of the church It would be important for us to recognize that all of the epistles in the New Testament were written to churches, to local churches. When you see the word church, particularly in the New Testament, typically that word in the Greek is ecclesia, and that typically refers to not the universal church, but to local churches. If you were to look, for instance, and turn the scriptures to... The letter of Galatians, you would see that the letter of Galatians was addressed to not the church in Galatia, but to the churches in Galatia. And again, the idea there is that all of these epistles were written to local congregations. That's a very important notion for us. We see that the Lord specifically has designed such that we receive His Word as local congregations that we work in that way, that the Lord has so designed this urgent importance in this way. The church isn't the kingdom of God, but it's an expression of the kingdom of God. All things are in the hands of God, beyond the church, but the church is certainly included in the kingdom. As I said, ecclesia means called out, called out. When we look at The New Testament idea of the church, of course, we would put this together with those called of the Lord, those called out into the Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider this doctrine of the church, it would be important for us to recognize that there are various pictures given to us about the church in the scriptures. For instance, we know that the church is described as the body of Christ. If you were to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you would see an entire chapter devoted to the description, the prescribed organization, and a window into the marvelous mystery of this thing called the church, the body of Christ. The hands, the feet of Christ. The actions of Christ here on earth, animated by none other than the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. The Bible also refers to the local church as a building or a temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Again, this notion of a building, Ephesians 2:20, read in your hearing, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the local church, if you will, looks like a building. First Peter 2, four through6. Again, same idea, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. There are many fellowships today that as they read this passage in First Peter chapter 2, they should, they should say this to themselves. If this is the scripture, then we are not a church. If this is a reference to believers that are gathered together by the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have no idea what it is that we're doing. But that's not what we're doing. It is our proposition that the Lord Jesus Christ was not making a mockery of us when He promises to us that which is declared here by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter. That we are like living stones fit together. That we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have a Heavenly Father that is, that is, that is caring for us, that persuades us, that plans for us, that calls us to Himself, that has made every single situation such that it works for our own good and for his glory that we might find ourselves in the glories of heaven moment by moment by moment all taken care of by a loving father the opportunity of course purchased for us by our older brother the Lord Jesus Christ and we say yes and amen yes This is the fellowship that I want to be a part of. This is what the Lord Jesus has promised. This is not fakery or mockery. The reality is is that sometimes when we have friends that let us down, or we have churches that let us down, what do we do? The same thing happens with the gospel. The false gospel has a way of inoculating people against the gospel. It goes something like this. Someone speaks to another about the gospel... And they describe it in such a way as to persuade the unbeliever that in fact he is a believer. And so he enjoys nothing, no relationship with the living God. And he begins to realize that. As a matter of fact, his experience of reality is such that his new birth is nothing. And so he rightly rejects that which is false. But then he goes further and says, there is no such thing. As the new life in Christ. And we may say the same thing about friends that let us down. There's no such thing as a biblical friendship. Or there's no such thing as a faithful church. And we say, no, no, no. There is, albeit imperfectly, there is that fellowship in cities and communities and towns all over our country and all over the world that delight themselves in happily entering into, albeit imperfectly, these promises. And they enjoy a depth of relation with their loving Father that no one else can touch. And they enjoy a depth and a growing relationship with their fellow believers that is glorious and that is in fact a true picture of beauty. And that is exactly what is referred to here. In this 122nd Psalm, we also have this idea that the church is a bride in Ephesians 5 and also in the book of Revelation. Now, this is an important notion because the reality is that it's likely that when we take the image of marriage, particularly of the beauty of the centrality and the glory of the bride in a wedding, and project it onto the relationship of Christ and the church, then we have frankly done great damage to both Christ, the church, and marriage. It's important that we recognize what is the originator, what is the prototype of Ephesians chapter 5. It isn't marriage between a man and a woman. But it's the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. That is the pinnacle. That is what is being written about by the Apostle Paul. He's talking about, and he says this, I'm referring to Christ and the church. And he says marriage is something like that. And so, the church being the bride of Christ if we don't actually grasp what thing is the original and what thing we are applying that explanation so that we can understand it, then we utterly fail to understand its import. And then lastly, when we consider Ephesians 2, we might consider the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Ephesians, likely from a Roman prison. The Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. If anyone understood empire... It was the Apostle Paul. As he traveled to and fro in his travels, he would see the ramifications, the validation of this boisterous and growing and very powerful empire, the Roman Empire. He would walk along the roads. He would see the bridges that they built that are still in existence today. He would... He would see the manifestations of the power, no doubt, as chained to a Roman soldier. He would understand fully this concept of the centurion, of a battalion of soldiers, of the power that they represent and project for the empire. And he would go so far as to say, the kingdom of God is like that. It's like an empire. He would go so far to call those who are in the kingdom of God, those redeemed as citizens of an empire. We, we have a king, do we not? We have the total institution of the kingdom of God. We have a homeland. We have a political structure. We have a government. We have a judiciary. We have full-orbed processes of productivity and security. We are a part of no paper kingdom, but a real kingdom that can and will sustain itself perfectly and ultimately endure forever. It is invisible, but has local manifestations that are, in fact, visible. That is the local church. And this local church, of course, as we see in Psalm 122, is currently in that situation that we might call the militant church. The church, as described in Psalm 102, has, excuse me, 122, has towers for watching. It is a walled city. The triumphant days of the church are not here, they're in heaven. And we look for that day with joy and a hope that is certain. Now, let's consider this psalm here. Perhaps I should say this as well. Some of us are studying Herman Bavink's theology on Thursday evenings, and Bavink makes it very clear, and it's important for us to understand, that the Church of Jesus Christ is not a developed organization. And the idea behind that, again, is that our religion is a revealed religion. The reality is the Israelite children had imposed upon them the manifestations and the character of God. They did not select to be involved. Again, as I've mentioned before, being called of the Lord is not always convenient. And the children of Israel certainly understood that. But nonetheless, it was revealed to them how they would worship. And the same is true for us. This is not some long-standing development over a period of time that looks like evolution. The reality is, is that God has made it very clear how to worship Him. And what it is that we're doing together. And that, in fact, no man is the originator even of a local congregation that we affirmed in our very beginning And certainly, as we lip the name of our fellowship, Providence Reformed Baptist Church, we are affirming and recognizing that it is God that has brought us together. Not only for the big C church, Universal, but for the little C church, Providence Reformed Baptist Church, that meets right here at the local YMCA. Who's done this? But God. And so here the psalm, the first verse, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad. I was glad. Now, it's reasonable that you're asking yourself the question, was I glad? when i came to the house of the lord this morning what what is the experience of my reality regarding a fellowship of christ is there a genuine delight at the prospect of going to the house of the lord Perhaps we should also ask ourselves the question, what is it that you were looking for when you came here? Because it seems uh, at least appropriate that you would consider what it is you're looking for, what it is that God has for you here, and that would somehow be associated with your experience of delight. It is to be a reflection of reality. It is to be truly a good and happy occasion to go to the assembly of God's people and to do what God has prescribed to be done there, not merely to see our family members in the Lord. Those with whom we enjoy a depth of relation greater than our natural relations, but to enter into that which is especially beautiful and a delight to the host of our fellowship. Yet, of course, the one who has called us is far more than A host, as I refer to in Psalm 50, verse 1. The Bible says, The mighty one God, the Lord, speaks and summons. Speaks and summons. Speaks and summons who? The earth. The earth. Every occupant of this globe... A joyous thing, yes, but a joy whose sponsor and originator is Almighty God. Yet this joy passes from the Lord in and through the church. The joy and warmth of the house of the Lord has much to do with the house itself, the people, the called ones. Our individual experience of the realities of our local fellowship, God has designed to be associated with our own relation to Christ. In our own devotion to walking holily with Christ, to following Him, to being led by the Spirit's. You might say, Well, I don't like the preaching. Pray for it, and it'll get better. I don't like the people. Pray for them. Pray for yourself. When you get better, we get better. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. May it be said of us that we can commend friend and neighbor alike, go with me to the house of the Lord. And we will do good for your soul. Again, verse 1, when they said. What is your response when you're encouraged and exhorted to go to the house of the Lord? When they said. What is King David in the position of here? Well, think about King David, if you will, the one who was used to pen this psalm. King David, the royal and majestic one. Is there any more royally and majestically treated than the mighty King David, the one whose throne is glorious, the one who people... Follow day after day the one of power, the one who is called the apple of God's own eye. What is he saying here? He finds no disrespect in being exhorted by his fellow countrymen to go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go to the house of the Lord. David, a most regal and majestic king, was not only not offended, but being encouraged by others to go and worship, but he delighted in that in it, others would care and urge him, and others to do that very thing, which would be so beneficial to their soul. David was pleased to be pressed to attend holy services. And note well that it says, Go! Excuse me, it says, let us go, not go. Let us go. is very different than saying go. Let us go. Let us go. The exhortation to others is go. The exhortation to ourselves is let us go. To the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord. Again, as I mentioned, just as Moses exhorted Hobab, his father in law, in Numbers 10 29, come with us and we will do you good. Why? Well, the Lord has promised good to Israel. Who is Israel? Well, as I said, there is but one Israel of God, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of those to whom are attached to him by faith, we also are his people. The Israel of God. Verse 2, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Speaking in the present tense of that which is in the future, a mindset of being in the house of the Lord within your gates. The local church should be the most heavenly place on earth. Her light should shine upon you. Her breezes should comfort you. Her sweet smells should be that of which you remember as most pleasant. Interestingly enough, One of my favorite stories, Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol, he captures this perfectly regarding Jacob Marley. When he describes Jacob Marley, the old partner of Ebenezer Scrooge, who, as you know, was in an eternity in hell, it said the picture of Jacob Marley was such when Scrooge saw him that it seemed as if the hot wafts of hell were yet blowing on his face. And that's the idea that we get, of course, in the positive sense here in Psalm 122. Our feet are standing in the gates of Jerusalem. We have a resurrected Christ who is there this day. We are in union with Him, are we not? We are there. It is as if we were there physically. How do you speak? Is it in heavenly tones? What is your countenance like? Our conversation should be as if in heaven and all of our works done in relation to eternal life. The unfortunate reality is that the harsh challenges of our world can rub away the contours of beauty in our own lives and in what we come to expect from others. This is a hard place to live, is it not? The challenges, the harsh realities of life here in a sinful world can rub away the beauty and the contours of our own lives. We began to be a people who become like wild beasts. We no longer have feeling or affections. or as if We're in the North Korean prison camp, no longer concerned about anything at all except where to get another meal and to be somehow shielded from the horrors of that regime. But it isn't to be so for us. For we are related in life to the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is certainly spoken of in Proverbs eleven twenty seven. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Friends, what this proverb is telling us is simply this. Are you looking for harsh difficulty? Are you looking for those who will let you down? Are you looking for a place that's lifeless and dead? The proverb says, you will find that. But the proverb also says, are you looking for life in Christ? Are you looking for that which is good and true? You will find that also. Verse 3, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. The idea here is a unity of mind and thoughts. A totality of wants and desires are provided. We have in Christ's church physical restoration, hospitality, food, clothing, the adjudication of civil and personal affairs, security and freedom from harm, defensively capable, and also constantly sending out patrols on the offensive. It's the place for the Lord's people to worship and fellowship over which God's banner of love flies Solomon 2.4 the banner of love flies I like flags I like to see them blowing in the wind as a matter of fact it's been my privilege to be announced on a navy ship and to have a flag flown that flies above the American flag The chaplain's flag flies above the American flag when services are done on Navy ships. And we should recognize that we have a flag over our fellowship and it is the banner of love. It's the banner of love. Verse 4, to which the tribes go up. The tribes, who are they? Well, they're the elect of God. They are the called out ones. That's who we are. As was decreed, or you'll see a note if you're using the ESV, as a testimony for, again, why are we here? The purpose was to hear the instruction from the Lord, to hear the testimony of the Lord. All of the ordinances of the Lord were to be exercised. The power to attract hearts and command the ready attendants. To hear the testimony of the Lord and also, as the Bible says, to give thanks. To give thanks. The fifth verse, their thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. God's people love justice. And have it as one of their priorities. Further, it is a profoundly important item among the purposes of God to bring justice. I would read and remind you of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And he lists there a hundred things. No, he doesn't. He lists only a few. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? And to love kindness. And to walk Humbly with your God. Yet, the trinity of three things that God has called us to, this summary, to love justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. While we must acknowledge a prevalent understanding of this, which directs prayers to the present nation of Israel, we also must acknowledge, as I mentioned at the outset, that the historical orthodox understanding of this passage is that we are directed in this after the advent of Christ to pray for the peace of the church. You go ahead and pray for the nation of Israel, that's perfectly fine with me, but you'll not have a commendation of that in this psalm. This psalm, is recommending to you that you pray for the peace of the church. I, for one, am very thankful for the nation of Israel, but also must agree with those who have gone before me that the reference is to the church of the living God. to pray that the people of God might enjoy pure worship without disturbance. The church on earth has always been as a ship at sea, sometimes enjoying calm weather and sometimes heavy seas. The very name of Jerusalem, and there seems to certainly be poetry here by David, means peace, Salem, Jerusalem, the city of peace. It means peace. Pray for the peace of the city of peace. Do we pray for the church? It is one thing to hope for goodwill in the church. It's another thing to earnestly pray for peace. The very means of this peace is often prayer. May they be secure who love you. The reverse of this, of course, is also true. There is no security outside of Christ and his church. Do you love the church? How do you express your love for the church? Commitment, compassion, conviction. May they be secure who love you. You want security? You want that thing that seems elusive, that seems so important to your walk with the Lord and to your daily life? Do so you want security? Well, our master has decided to directly connect security with your love of the church. And why he has done that, I don't know. But he has most certainly done that. And it's fitting for us as his creatures to delight ourselves in that. Is your attitude ho-hum toward the fellowship of the church? Do you think little of it? Do you think that it is something whose days are bygone? And that has little relevance in this day. You're only harming yourself, as the psalmist says here. Verse 7, "...peace be within your walls and security within your towers." There may be some who are uncomfortable with these references as applied to the church, but nonetheless, it's important for us to recognize that the church is a war town and a walled town, which is situated among enemies and must not trust those who are outside, must be attentive to her defense as well as the sending out of patrols. The tower has a singular purpose of watchfulness for the operation of warfare. Yes, the church in some ways has a defensive posture. We're we're always, as the infantryman says, better establishing... Our own defense, our own camp. We're always building that, if you will, improving our position. You say, well, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that idea. It seems very warlike. We are at war. We are at war. We are in spiritual warfare. And so not only are we improving our position, but we are doing that which our Lord has commanded. He owns everything. And we are also to send out patrols into these areas that are not yet claimed such that we can stake the flag of the Lord Jesus Christ because He owns all of that. We do that as we speak the truth to friends and neighbors, as we say, come with me to the house of the Lord and He will do your soul good. The church is not a cowering institution. The master, the builder, the Lord and Savior of the church of Jesus Christ has said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then we can know that we will be victorious, not only as we continually improve the position of the church, but as we go forward. It does seem appropriate that I might set in your minds an illustration from John Bunyan's book, Holy War. In Holy War, this book that pictures man's soul, if you will, the soul of man in a spiritual warfare. And at the very beginning of the book, there is there are these plans by Satan and his minions to take man's soul, if you will. That is to take the individual man for itself, for the kingdom of darkness and not the kingdom of light. And when they do that, there is initially smooth talking, and then secondly, the first one that died in the holy war was Captain Resistance. As Bunyan says, the only man of war in the town when Captain Resistance was killed. Poor Mansoul was wholly left naked of courage, For she had no heart to resist. The church of Christ is a wartime organization. But we have a captain of our faith. He has made every provision for us. He has affection for his soldiers one for another. He makes perfect provision for us. He is our shield. He is our protector. He has provided for us spiritual armor that is absolutely effective in every way. We can go forth entirely confident in this one who we follow. Verse 8, for my brothers and companions' sake, the well-being of the church is most central to the well-being of ourselves and others. The harsh realities of this sinful world incline us to merely dip our foot into the waters of Christ's church. To merely dip our waters into dip our feet into the waters of Christ's church. I'm not trying to make an allusion to baptism by immersion. But the idea in Psalm 122 has a lot to do with the way that Peter reacted when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection recorded in John chapter 21 verse 7. So they're out on the fishing boat after John had said and commended the others with him to go fishing. Basically, John was saying, You know what? This whole thing with Jesus Messiah was great, but it's a bust. It didn't work out. And then he hears the Lord Jesus speaking from the shore. And he says, It is the Lord. And he takes off his outer garment. And he jumps in the water. And he swims to shore. That's what the Lord is calling us to in Psalm 122. For the sake of the house of the Lord, verse 9. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. It is only when we make a little prayer that we see the church languish. It is a little war that you make against sinful flesh that has you lingering in sin. It is a little effort that is responsible for your lack of deep friendship. It is a little Bible reading that is the reason you lack understanding. It is a little pride that has you thinking you know best instead of the Lord of the church. You go ahead and you make your little things. The church of Jesus Christ is not about little things. It's about the majesty of the one on high. It's about the blood-bought church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the glorious institution referred to here in Psalm 122. And I commend that you would be a part of the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ by receiving from the one alone who can give life the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let us pray.